<laughs> so, so, have I ever told you that I eat um, fun-sized Kit Kats like a psychopath? Like a psychopath? Mm-hmm. Oh, because you are not breaking them off in order to share them. Specifically, you're not bringing off a piece of that particular Kit Kat bar, which I can only think to say, give me a break. (laughs) Um, Welcome to Super Duperstitious. The parasocial podcast where we are your real friends. And as your real friends, we want to invite you back to the show (laughs) that you're now hearing. (laughs) And you can listen to us talk about spooky things, mysterious things. All from a scientific perspective. Yeah. What's what's new with us? We got we both have new jobs now. Mine hasn't started yet. Yours is happening. Both exceptionally busy. I am somehow already half a month into my new job. Good God. Yeah, it's like time. So like, yeah, I don't know when this episode's going to come out. I don't know when the next one will, but you know, thanks for bearing with us. Thanks for bearing with us. I will mention as well, I'm not only getting a new job this month, I'm also getting a new wife. <laughs> <laughs> It's Um, true. Which is to say that I am tragically breaking up with my current girlfriend in order to marry her. (laughs) Your current fiance, even. Yes. Current fiance. Your ex-girlfriend. Current fiance, even. uh, Your ex-girlfriend. Ex-girlfriend, current fiance. I'm going to have to break it off in order to marry her. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) And uh, that's a borrowed joke, but it's one of my favorites. It is. Yeah, so that's happening in a week. And I'll be there. And Jake's going to be there, so the whole super duperstitious family will expand and that will cause a disruption <laughs> in your regularly scheduled programming so uh as as your close personal friends we're gonna ask you to fucking deal with it look for cute pictures on instagram as usual look right. for us having maybe a loosey-goosey episode this time and look for the helpers whatever that means that's a mr rogers thing um, Ah. What's this week's episode premise, Wyatt? This week's episode premise, uh, unless I'm mistaken, is I think our first dive into, what should we call them, the the C.S. Not Lewis files. I think that would work. Thank you, Cindy, for sending us all this cool stuff. Cindy sent us... Listener, Cindy, I guess friend of the show now. Yeah. Uh, Cindy sent us an email with uh, almost no words in it, but an attachment of an article a very cryptic uh, invitation yeah. that simply says, Article from the Wilson World from Wilson, KS24, January 1895. KS, I think, means Kansas. Wilson, Kansas, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. And so then it just had the, the, the attached article. Uh, very cool and cryptic. Very, very interesting. I deliberately read nothing more than the title because I didn't know which of us was going to take it. So based on that, I also don't super know what the theme was for this week. Enough to know for sure if mine matches yours. I do have a weird old article. So hopefully that's close enough. Well then, you know, I'm going to launch right in. Apologies in advance if I'm a little loosey-goosey today. It's been straight wild. But you know what? Actually, no no more appropriate way to set the table for this sure. particular uh, story mm-hmm. that was published and does exist from 1895 <laughs> Great. and is entitled Last of the Vampires. <laughs> This is by Phil Robinson, which we all know from 1895. 104 years before... A certain movie, which also came out a mere 22 years before a certain other movie is about to come out. <laughs> That's right. Do you remember the discovery of the man-lizard bones in a cave on the Amazon sometime in the 40s? 1840s, that is. 
Yes, I know the discovery of the man lizard bones. Ah, oh, shit. I wanted to do like the Muffin Man, but I can't remember the whole entire sentence. Oh, nice. Do you want to do that or should no, I keep going? No, I don't think it's worth it for anybody. <laughs> Perhaps not. But it created a great stir at the time in the scientific world and in a lazy sort of way, interested men and women of fashion. Ooh. For a day or two, it was quite the correct thing for Belgravia to talk of, quote, connecting links of the evolution of man from the reptile mm. and the, quote, reasonableness of the ancient myths. I'm just picturing the Super Mario Brothers movie now. Yeah. Of the ancient myths that spoke of centaurs and mermaids as actual existences. The fact was that a German India rubber merchant Working his way with the usual mob of locals through a forest along the Moranon, came upon some bones on the riverbank where he had pitched his camp. Idle curiosity made him try to put them together when he found, to his surprise, that he had before him the skeleton of a creature with human legs and feet, a dog-like head, and immense bat-like wings. Wow. Being a shrewd man, he saw the possibility of money being made of such a curiosity, Jesus. so he put all the bones he could find into a sack, and on the back of a llama, they were in due course conveyed to Chancapoyas and thence to Germany. Mm. Unfortunately, his name happened to be the same as that of another German who just then had been trying to hoax the scientific world with some papyrus rolls of a date anterior to the flood mm. and who had been found out and put to shame. Whoa. Pretty sure they're talking, that's like pretty hot goss. Mm -hmm. So when his namesake appeared with the bones of a winged man, he was treated with scant ceremony. Mm. However, he sold the India rubber very satisfactorily and as far as the bones, he left them with a young medical student of the ancient university of Berundwurst and went back to his trees and locals and the banks of the Amazon. And there was an end of him. Hmm. The young student one day put his fragments together and, do what he would, could only make one thing of them. A winged man with a dog's head. Mm -hmm. There were a few ribs too many and some odds and ends of backbone which were superfluous, but what else could be expected of an the anatomy of so extraordinary a creature? From one student to another, the facts got about, and at last, the professors came to hear of it. And to cut a long story short, no way, the student skeleton was taken to pieces by the learned heads of the college, and put together again by their own learned hands. Mm -hmm. But, do what they would, they could only made one thing of it. They could only <laughs> made one thing of it! Oh, a straight up printed typo. Typo from a hundred years ago. <laughs> but do what they would, they could only made one thing of it. A winged man with a dog's head. The matter now became serious. The professors were at first puzzled and then got quarrelsome. And the result of their squabbling was that pamphlets and counterblasts were published. And so all the world got to hear of the bitter controversy about the man lizard of the Amazon. Oh. One side declared, of course, that such a creature was an impossibility and that the bones were a remarkably clever hoax. The other side retorted by challenging the skeptics to manufacture a duplicate and publishing the promise of such large rewards to anyone who would succeed in doing so that the museum was beset for months by competitors. But no one could manufacture another man-lizard. The man part was simple enough, provided they could get a human skeleton, 
but at the angles of the wings were set huge claws, black, polished, and curved. And carved? And nothing that ingenuity could suggest would imitate them. And the genuinists, as these, as those who believed in the monster called themselves, set the imposturists another poser, for they publicly challenged them to say what animal either the head or the wings had belonged to, if not to the man lizard. Mm-hmm. And the answer was never given. So victory remained with them, but not, alas, the bones of contention. For the imposturists, by bribery, I have to crawl up to the top of the page. And burglary got access to the precious skeleton. And lo, one morning, the glory of the museum had disappeared. Ah. The man half of it was left, but the head and wings were gone. And from that day to this, no one has ever seen them again. Mm-hmm. And which of the two factions was right? As a matter of fact, neither. Mm-hmm. As the following fragments of narrative will go to prove... Once upon a time, so say the Zaporo Indians who inhabited the district between the Amazon and the Maranon, there came across to Pampas de Sacramento a company of gold seekers, white men, who drove the locals from their workings and took possession of them. You know, mm-hmm. like white people do. Yes, indeed. They were the first white men who had ever been seen there. And the locals were afraid of their guns. But eventually treachery did the work of courage, for, pretending to be friendly, the locals sent their women among the strangers, and they taught them how to make tukupi of the bread root, but did not tell them how to distinguish between the ripe and the unripe. Mm-hmm. So the wretched white men made tukupi out of the unripe fruit, Uh-oh. and when they were lying about, helpless, the locals attacked them and killed them all. Hmm. All but three, these three they gave to the vampire. <laughs> Quick pivot. Go a little bit. But what was the vampire? The Zaporos did not know. Quote, very long ago, they said, there were many vampires in Peru, but they were all swallowed up in the year of the great earthquake when the Andes were lifted up and there was left behind only one, Arinchi, who lived where the Amazon joins the Maranon, and he would not eat dead bodies, only live ones, mm-hmm. from which the blood would flow unquote of whoever right when when sacrifice was made to the vampire the victim was bound in a canoe and taken down the river to a point where there was a kind of winding backwater which had shelving banks of slimy mud and at the end there was a rock with a cave in it they just blast open these sentences from time to time (laughs) and here the canoe was left A very slow current flowed through the torturous creek, and anything thrown into the water ultimately reached the cave. Some of the locals had watched the canoes drifting along a few yards only in an hour, and turning round and round as they drifted, and had seen them reach the cave and disappear within. And it had been a wonder to them, generation after generation, that the cave was never filled up. For all day long the current was flowing into it, carrying with it the sluggish flotsam of the river. Sluggish Flotsam. <laughs> you call me Sluggish Flotsam. Good bad so they name. S- it's a good bad name. It's true. So they said the cave was the entrance to hell and bottomless. And one day a white man, a professor that, of that same University of Berundwurst, and a mighty hunter of beetles before the Lord, who lived with the locals in friendship, went up the backwater right up to the entrance and set afloat inside the cave a little raft heaped up with t- uh, touchwood and knots of the oil tree, which he set fire to. 
and he saw the raft go creeping along, all ablaze for an hour or more, lighting up the wet walls of the cave as it went on either side. And then it was put out. It did not go out suddenly, as if it had upset or had floated over the edge of a waterfall, but just as if it had been beaten out. For the burning fragments were flung to one side and the other, and the pieces, still alight, glowed for a long time on the ledges and points of rock where they fell. And the cave was filled with the sound of a sudden wind and the echoes of the noise of great wings flapping. Ooh. I know this is some, some Lon Strickler-ish talk. A bit. And at last, one day, the professor went into the cave himself. I took, he wrote, a large canoe, and from the bows I built out a brazier of stout cask hoops. Behind it, I set a gold-washing tin dish for a reflector and loaded the canoe with roots of the resin tree and oil wood and yams and dried meat. A yam? A yam. He took a yam. He planted a yam. Oh, my God. (laughs) Talking about our friend Rapa Nui. Yes, indeed. Episode 35 or something? Uh, later than that. 55? I, I'm going to guess upper 70s. Nice. Not a clue. And I took spears with me, some tipped with Wurali poison that numbs but does not kill. Mm-hmm. And I lit my fire. And with my pole. Oh, my God. I guided my canoe very cautiously through the tunnel, and before long... It widened out, and creeping along one wall, I suddenly became aware of a moving of something. So I turned the light fair upon it, and there, upon a kind of ledge, sat a beast with a head like a large gray dog. Its eyes were as large as a cow's. What its shape was I could not see, but as I looked, I began gradually to make out two huge, bat-like wings, and these were spread out to their utmost, as if the beast were on tiptoe and and ready to fly, and really to fly. (laughs) And so it was, for just as I had realized that, I beheld before me some great bat reptile of a kind unknown to science, except as a predilluvian. Oh, of course. Yeah. And the shock had thrilled through me at the thought that I was actually in the presence of a living specimen of the so-called extinct flying lizards of the flood. The thing launched (laughs) itself upon the air, and the next instant was upon me. Appropriately long sentence for some reason. Clutching onto the canoe, it beat with its wings at the same... uh, It beat with its wings at the flame so furiously that it was all I could do to keep from capsizing, and, taken by surprise, I was nearly stunned by the strength and rapidity of the blows before I attempted to defend myself. (gasps) By that time, scarcely half a minute had elapsed. The brazier had been nearly emptied by the powerful brute, and the vampire, mistaking me, no doubt, for a victim of sacrifice, had taken hold of me. The next instant, I had driven a spear clean through his body, And with a prodigious tumult of wings, the thing loosened its claws from my clothes and dropped off into the stream. As quickly as possible, I rekindled my light and now saw the Arinchi with wings outstretched upon the water, drifting down on the current. I followed it. Mm -hmm. Hour after hour, with my reflector turned full upon that gray dog's head with cow-like eyes, I passed (laughs) along down the dark and silent waterway. Don't forget, I ate and drank as I went along, but did crawling up not dare to sleep (laughs) a day must have passed in two nights and then as i had long expected i saw right ahead a pale eye-shaped glimmer and knew that i was coming out into daylight again the opening came nearer and it was with intense eagerness that i gazed upon my trophy the floating orangey the last of the winged reptiles 
But that's a hell of a gamble to just like go into a cave and hope it doesn't just drop off at some point. Oh my god, for real! And like, just assume you're gonna beast to this thing. Like, yeah. come on, <laughs> I'll give it a good stab. That should do it. Already in imagination, I saw myself the foremost of travelers in European fame, the hero of the day. What were Banks kangaroos or Dehailu's gorilla? Dehailu? Dehailu, right? Not a clue. Maybe that's how you say it. <laughs> to my discovery of the last survivor of the pterodactyls, the creatures of the flood, the flying saurian of the pre-Noachian Noachian epic, of the pre-Noachian epic of catastrophe and mud. Full of these thoughts, I had not. Uh, full of these thoughts, I had not noticed that the vampire was no longer moving, and suddenly, the bow of the canoe bumped against it. In an instant, it had climbed up on to the boat. Its great bat-like wings once more beat me and scattered the flaming brands, <laughs> and the thing made a desperate effort to get past me back into the gloom. It had seen the daylight approaching, and rather than face the sun, preferred to fight. Its ferocity was that of a maddened dog, but I kept it off with my pole, and seeing my opportunity as it clung, flapping its wings upon the bow, gave it such a thrust as made it drop off. Whew! Really, like, <laughs> this is like punctured tire drama. <laughs> it began to swim. I then, for the first time, noticed its long neck. See, up until this point, I thought he had stabbed it, like, impaled it with a spear, and it yes. died, and he was following its body. Yes, that's exactly what happened. That's how but he said it happened. Right. But I guess it was just sort of sleep. <laughs> I guess so. I then, for the first time, noticed its long neck. But... With my pole, I struck it on the head and stunned it, and once more saw it go drifting on the current into daylight. What a relief it was to be out in the open air. It was noon, and as we passed out from under the entrance of the cave, the river blazed so in the sunlight that after the two days of almost total darkness, I was blinded for a time. I turned my canoe to the shore, to the shade of the trees, and throwing a noose over the floating body, let it tow behind. Once more on firm land and in possession of the vampire, I dragged it out of the water. <laughs> what a hideous beast it looked, this winged kangaroo with a python's neck. It was not dead, so I made a muzzle with a strip of skin. Then I firmly bound its wings together round its body. I lay down and slept. When I awoke the next day, uh, when I awoke, the next day was breaking. So, having breakfasted, I dragged my captive into the canoe and went on down the river. Where I was, I had no idea, but I knew that I was going to the sea, going to Germany, and that was enough. Break. <laughs> Resume. For two months, I have been drifting with the current down this never-ending river of my adventures of hostile locals, of rapids, of alligators and jaguars. I need say nothing, even though I just did. <laughs> they are the common property of all travelers. Jesus. But my vampire, it is alive, <laughs> and now I am devoured by only one ambition, to keep it alive. To let Europe actually gaze upon the living, breathing survivor of the great reptiles known to the human race before the days of Noah, the missing link between the reptile and the bird. To this end, I denied myself food, denying myself even precious medicine. In spite of myself, wait, in spite of itself, I gave... Ugh. In spite of itself, I gave it all my quinine, and when the miasma crept up the river at night, 
I covered it with my rug and lay exposed myself. If the black fever should seize me... Break. Resume. Three months, <laughs> and still upon this hateful river, will it never end? I have been ill, so ill that for two days I could not feed it. I had not the strength to go to shore to find food, and I fear that I will die. Die before I can get it home. Break again. Mm-hmm. Resume. Been ill again, the black fever. But it is alive. I caught a vicuna swimming in the river, and it sucked it dry. Gallons of blood. It had been unfed three days. In its hungry haste, it broke its muzzle. I was almost too feeble to put it on again. A horrible thought possesses me. Suppose it breaks its muzzle again when I am lying ill, delirious, and it, uh, and it is ravenous. Oh, the horror of it. To see it eating is terrible. It links the claws of its wings together and cowers over the body, its head, under the wings, out of sight. But the victim never moves. As soon as the vampire touches it, there seems to be a paralysis. Once those wings are linked, there is absolute quiet, only the grating of teeth upon bone. Horrible. Mm-hmm. Horrible. <laughs> but in Germany, I shall be famous. In Germany. <laughs> with my vampire. <laughs> break again I am very feeble it broke its muzzle again but it was in the daylight when it is blind its great eyes are blind in the sunlight it was a long struggle this black fever and the horror of this thing I am too weak to kill it if I would I must get it home alive soon surely soon the river will end oh god does it never reach the sea reach white men (laughs) reach home but if it attacks me I will throttle it. If we cannot go back to Germany alive, we will go together dead. I will throttle it with my two hands and fix my teeth in its horrible neck, and our bones shall lie together on the bank of this accursed river. Ah, I wonder where this is going. I know, for real. Break again. This is nearly all that was recovered of the... Prof- oh, here we go. <clears throat> back to the other guy. <laughs> this is nearly all that was recovered of the professor's diary, but it is enough to tell us of the final tragedy. <laughs> I pretty much spelled it out. Yes. The two skeletons were found together on the very edge of the riverbank. Half of each, in the lapse of years, had been washed away at successive flood tides. The rest, when put together, made up the man-reptile that, to use a Rabelaisian phrase, metagrabalized all to nothing. <laughs> you know the one. Yep. The University of Berundfest. Contemporary Review. Wow. So, <laughs> the the basic takeaway, tabloids have existed forever. <laughs> oh, have they? Uh, and uh, I may have an example of one some 60 years earlier than yours. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> um, I guess what this made me think of was a couple things. One was dinosaurs, I think, were all the rage at this point. Dinosaur yes. bones in general and the sort of construction of... And reconstruction of biological organisms. So mm-hmm. I can imagine there was a little more free reign to speculate that one might find a crazy body like this. Yes. But very interesting to see some lasting, let's call them cryptozoological tropes here. Yeah. Where you have the debate between folks who believe it's real and think it's fake, and these guys are kind of swooping in to say, like, hey, it's something else. It's real. (laughs) 
and kind of hilarious that it is ostensibly like an objective account, but is constantly referring back to like the flood. Yeah. So it just tells you something about a cultural energy of the time. Which makes sense too, because it was a time when paleontology was taking off in a big way. Even yes. by people who didn't really understand or or accept evolution yet as a, right. as a way things could be happening. And so people were excited about these discoveries without necessarily knowing what they could represent. And so they were just, there's a lot of things they're trying to reconcile with that that was real interesting. We talked about this a bit in uh, an episode about Deloitte's Ape and Piltdown Man. I think it was episode, I want to say 89. Also, Ooh. I did look up the episode where you talked about the um, uh, kind of impossible to decipher language of Rapa Nui. That was, uh, believe it or not, episode 112. Oh, we were both rather off, but you were closer. Way so more by recent. Price is Right rules, <laughs> you get the um, couch. And uh, even more astoundingly, I actually do have a brief reference to that exact same episode in my segment today. Weird coincidence. Unreal. But yeah, a fun article. One that is perhaps kind of like cuts itself with its own dramatic blade because the language is so circuitous that it like punctures the tires even as they're trying to spin up but at the time that wasn't out of the ordinary and so to us now it reads like oh this is just going in so hard on the narrative part of it but back right. then I was like that was just kind of how they wrote shit <laughs> like they made exactly. things sound really really elaborate and the prose was just a lot denser yeah uh, but but was- as a result reading it now is like well just how could anyone think this was true ever <laughs> Exactly. So hopefully it was a little bit fun to hear. It was fun to read. I also like the uh, the way that it captured different kind of zeitgeist-related stuff of the day and put it into something sensational, because that happens in mine as well. I cannot wait to hear it. But you're going to have to wait, because first, we should thank our sponsor. Yes, indeed. That sponsor, of course, being Four Phantoms, International Intergalactic Microbrewery. I understand you just drank a shitload of Four Phantoms recently. Is that correct? I did. I have only Drew to thank the fifth Phantom himself. <laughs> Drew is kind enough to hook it up at our uh, wedding send-off celebration. Uh, full disclosure, we live pretty near each other and our buds. And uh, yeah, he hooked it up. It was very fun. So, had a bunch of Bite Back and Battle Standard. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the font on the Battle Standard can has been revamped Ooh. and looks very badass. Cool. And, you know, the contents don't hurt either. This is our way of saying that Four Phantoms is a brewery that makes beer in, and that's why I was saying close to him, Western Massachusetts. <laughs> uh, East Hampton, to be exact, and mm. soon enough in Greenfield. Hey. At the tavern that we don't actually always hang out in, despite what some fans think. Uh-huh. But hopefully someday we will. Looking at you, Michelle. The dream to one day record every episode there. That would be insane. We may be recording at least one episode there in the not-too-distant future. Mm-hmm. Stay tuned. You might find out. Oh, I'm pretty surprised. Knocked over. But you know what? Until that happens, for now, all we can say is thank you for Phantoms. Do check out getting their beer in Massachusetts or Rhode Island where yes. distributors carry it. Or you can go online and order some through their website for phantoms.net and if you uh if you know you don't have the means of doing any of the things we say you should do and want to still help them anyway because you're nice and want to help us help them you can go to untappeted.com we'll link to it in every episode <laughs> where you can leave a nice review of a beer you haven't even had because that's a nice way to get them some more uh vision, vision more traction more with visibility and traction. <laughs> and uh, if you mention us in any capacity in your review, we'll read it on the show. Thank you so much for Phantoms. We love you guys and uh, love having you in our lives. Yeah. 
And other people we also love having in our lives is our patrons on Patreon. And we'll thank them with a machine that we have. That's right. That, of course, is the NCAA device, a, uh, an acronym that I forget what that stands for. Uh, it is a cursed kind of computer organism, but nothing like the device from Existence. It is just a computer. But it does tap into the dark either, and we do plug it into the backs of our heads to run the program Pander, which, of course, Jake is the patron appreciation neural dive for evaluation of risk, which will calculate for our lovely patrons whatever ghouly cryptid creature monster or otherwise strange thing out there they need to be on the lookout for so it's a chance for us to sort of do a solid for you since you've done a solid for us by supporting the show mm-hmm. so let's turn this machine on and uh first off we're gonna focus on emily, emily from divine, divine texas. texas emily watch out <laughs> For Donestre. Oh, all the ads, all the ads. The oh Donestre are a race of lion headed humanoid monsters dating back to the days of Alexander the Great. Wow, this is very apropos of our previous segment in a way. Uh, a little bit, yeah. Weird uh, animal headed uh, creatures from, I guess, before the flood. I don't really know when the flood. I guess that's not really accurate to this time period. But well, it was after Alexander the Grand. I'm pretty sure. Well, they were infamous for their perplexing actions, their ability to speak any language, them befriending travelers <laughs> from other lands before devouring them, including you, Emily, um, leaving only a decapitated head that the monster would then sit by and mourn. That's a very uh, perplexing action. The act of mourning sets the Dynastry apart from many other monsters of the period. It is believed by some researchers that the mourning of the Dynastry is symbolic of how travelers would mourn a loss of their own identity when trying to become part of a foreign culture. Wow. <laughs> you got a deep one here, Emily. Uh. So I guess look out for culture shock. Look out for... Multilingual creatures with lion heads. That's probably easier to find. That's or at least, actually or at least notice. easier to find. Do not watch the movie Cats. That's actually advice for any of our listeners, um, unless you have taken some kind of drugs. And <laughs> thank you for supporting us. <laughs> on thank you Patreon. very much. We really appreciate it, and uh, we love you. Yeah, oh, we're getting a, another reading coming into us from oh, wow. the Pander device. Let's see. Uh, by actually, really remarkable coincidence. Was not planning on this. Oh my gosh, Cindy, Cindy Scott. Scott, CS, not Lewis herself. Yes, Cindy. Thank you for sending in all the interesting stuff for us to read and they are a hoot yes and uh you know be on the lookout for mussy <laughs> so thank you so much <laughs> for supporting Cindy. us on patreon and um you know let's let's go ahead and unplug these from our brains here there we go that feels a lot better <laughs> <laughs> Uh, if you, I gotta say, uh, the pander function is getting littered with banner ads. Yeah, it's a thing you don't expect to happen in a machine that you have to have summoned, <laughs> yeah. but it, you know, it does happen. The dark ether had a lot of ads for lows. <laughs> <laughs> if you too would like to have your own creature calculated by uh, the pander function, uh, all you gotta do is sign up to our Patreon at any tier at all, and at any tier. You get the guaranteed Pander entry. You get Discord access. We have a very fun Discord. It was bumping this past week. People have been joining more and more. It's a fun place to share all kinds of cool stuff with other members of the Super Duper Citrus community. 
And, uh, you know, above, that's that's all at the entry level. You get all that stuff just for joining. And above that, higher tiers, you can also get weekly bonus mini-sos, which are cool as hell. Very fun stuff. You got to hear a bonus one on the main feed just a little while ago. Let's get a kind of kind of wet your palate, kind of mm-hmm, tempt mm-hmm. you with that stuff. Uh, you get quarterly stickers as well. And, and you know, that's just more stuff about that. It's great stuff, great times. You should consider it. And we thank you for it. What Jake said. Also, glass, friggin' glasses are happening to us. So good. They're finally ordered. They should be happening. They should be shipping, I would like to say, within the next couple of days. And then I can start setting them to everybody. These are spectacles for the head. <laughs> so they have, I believe, two focal points of lens. They are for beer, and <laughs> they will have our logo on them. Is this correct? They're tulip-shaped? Yes. Make sure to enter your intrapupillary distance in, uh, as well as your address on patreon so make sure we get the correct prescription for all of you of uh this cool belgian beer glass that has our logo on it it's crazy oh (laughs) belgian beer glass that's way better than what i thought we were getting oh my (laughs) gosh i am shocked that people did not jump on this yeah what the hell we need still there's still time so we'll post some pictures once they arrive you can get a sense of what we're talking about and how cool it is they look super dope if you're one of the first 100 patrons on our patreon you will get one and then you can quaff along with us yes. in style. So, yeah. Let's uh, dive back in. Mm-hmm. Thank you all for listening. All right. Today, I'm going to be working primarily from six heavily abridged articles that were released. Six. Six heavily abridged articles that were released, uh, let's see, over the course of about a week in, um, it was the last week of August, 1835, in the New York Sun newspaper completely unaffiliated with the modern garbage publication of the same name wow uh these releases were presented by the american uh, presented to the american public as reprints from the edinburgh current a contemporary scottish newspaper and all written by a dr andrew grant Hmm. and yes obviously i mistyped that more than once as dr alan grant because i can't help that it's the first name that jumped to my mind as well exactly uh, i'm gonna do my best to include just the best parts here because again this was six goddamn articles and none of them were short i cut oh, this down man. from i shit you not 24 pages single space oh boy yeah it was uh it was a lot and as we've heard from from your 60 year newer article People like to talk in a, a very roundabout way back then. So there's rather circuitous. Plenty, yes. plenty to cut. So article one from Tuesday, August 25th, 1835. In this unusual addition to our journal, we have the happiness of making known to the British public and thence to the whole <laughs> civilized world. Here we go. <laughs> recent discoveries in astronomy, which will build an imperishable monument to the age in which we live. Oh. And confer upon the present generation of the human race a proud distinction through all future time. It has been poetically said that the stars of heaven are the hereditary regalia of man as the intellectual sovereign of the animal creation. He may now hold the zodiac around him with a loftier conscientiousness of his mental supremacy. Oh, man. It goes on so so hard hard from there. Like so much more of that. So much more of that. You see, when I was reading mine, I was sort of watching you slightly tune out more than usual. And I was like, oh, no. It was because I knew... I'm used. To, I, I got used to you've, what stuff wasn't been important. Here. Yeah, I was like, you've been I, in the trenches. So like I can like, I can oh, zone God. out for a couple seconds. And I can just pick up on the words that actually matter again. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm gonna have to distill this five hour long sentence into like two words. <laughs> yep. Uh, 
So I skip ahead here to see. To render our enthusiasm intelligible, we will state at once that by means of a telescope of vast dimensions and an entirely new principle, the younger Herschel at his observatory in the Southern Hemisphere has already made the most extraordinary discoveries in every planet of our solar system. I'm going to skip ahead to some more because it just keeps going on about stuff. Crazy good astronomer. Yeah, Sir, Sir John Herschel, as he's saying, is just the be-all and end-all of astronomers in, as far as this article is concerned. And as far as history is concerned, he did actually do some pretty cool stuff. Oh, uh, sweet. I think I think his dad might have been the first to see Saturn, maybe? Galileo. I might be wrong. Uh, Galileo was? Okay. Uh, <laughs> or no, I was saying his dad was Galileo. Was Galileo. <laughs> um, but uh, Herschel did like name several of Saturn's moons, uh, some different cool stuff. Like he 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 did, sa- and he dabbled like a lot of the you know like just rich guys who were interested in science back in the day. He just dabbled in every little thing. So he did botany, he did like chemistry, he did everything. Article goes on to describe how they set up his telescope in South Africa, how cool it was, what it could do, how much different it was from telescopes at the time, which was neat for the time because. Really powerful telescopes were kind of a novel thing. We've been spoiled as hell having uh, free access to images from a shitload of observatories all over the world, uh, plus from telescopes in friggin' space. So for them, the idea of being able to see stuff True. as far away as those kinds of big telescopes could was very, very exciting. Pretty wild. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Grant then says that Herschel was exceedingly confident in the abilities of his telescope and what it could observe. To quote once more, so sanguinely indeed did he calculate upon the advantages of his, this splendid alliance that he expressed confidence in his ultimate ability to study even the entomology of the moon in case she contained oh. insects upon her surface. <laughs> wow. So that's, that's where we're at so far. Article 2, Wednesday, August 26th, 1835. He was, he was just looking at a lamp out the window. <laughs> yeah. There are moths on the moon. <laughs> Uh, I the, I cut two and a half pages of description from the very beginning of this article about just the moving the telescope parts and the decision on where they should specifically set up shop and how they made their observations via a kind of like camera obscura setup for ease and for simultaneous viewing. So now we jump to the good part. New lunar discoveries. Here we go. It was about half past nine o'clock on the night of January 10th, the moon having then advanced within four days of her uh, mean liberation the astronomer adjusted his instruments for the inspection of her eastern limb. Ooh. The field of view was covered throughout its entire area with a beautifully distinct and even vivid representation of basaltic rock. Its color was a greenish-brown, and the width of the columns is defined by their interstices uh, interstices on the canvas. I don't know how you do that as a noun. Interstices, I think is right. Okay. Uh, interstices I would, on... I've described this article as very interstices. <laughs> yes. Uh, was invariably 28 inches. Wow. Uh, no <laughs> this is a good telescope. <laughs> yep. <laughs> no fracture whatever appeared in the mass first uh, first presented. But in a few seconds, a shelving pile appeared of five or six columns width, which showed their figure to be hexagonal and their articulations similar to those of the basaltic formula, uh, formation at Staffa. So he's talking about these uh, basalt columns that are uh, shaped like hexagons. Yes. And for more information about columnar basalt, uh, episode... Basalt. episode uh, one twelve specific islands. One that we accidentally referenced in the last segment. There you go. There um, you go. Yeah. So unpre- unprecedented. Is he going to see a moon lizard? <laughs> we'll get there. Unprecedented close up a view of lunar geology. Pretty good stuff. I'll uh, continue to list the things they were able to make out. The precipitous shelf was profusely covered with a dark red flower, precisely similar, says Doctor Grant, to the Papaver roas or rose poppy of our sublunar cornfields. 
and this was the first organic production of nature in a foreign world ever revealed to the eyes of men. Wow. From now on, I do intend to describe anything in the world here on Earth as sublunary. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the specimen of lunar vegetation demonstrated that the moon has an atmosphere constituted similarly to our own and capable of sustaining organized and therefore most probably animal life. Mm. The basaltic rocks continued to pass over the inclined canvas plane uh, through three successive diameters when a verdant declivity of great beauty appeared, which which occupied two more. Good Lord. This is preceded by another mass of nearly the former height, at the base of which they were at length delighted to perceive that novelty, a lunar forest. You remember this? You remember the previous height, right? <laughs> right. The trees, says Dr. Grant, for a period of 10 minutes were of one unvaried kind and unlike any I have seen, except the largest kind of yews in the English churchyards, which they in some respects resemble. They were closely, they were followed by a level green plain, which, as measured by the painted circle on our canvas of 49 feet, must have been more than half a mile in breadth. And then appeared as fine as a forest, uh, as fine a forest of firs, unequivocally firs, as I have ever seen cherished in the bosom of my native mountains. Good lord, with this language. Uh-huh. Next, they see a cool beach. Nice. <laughs> the action of very high tides was quite manifest <laughs> upon the face of the cliffs for more than a hundred miles. Yet diversified as the scenery was during this and a much greater distance, we perceived no trace of animal existence notwithstanding we could command at will a perspective of a foreground view of the whole. Oh, my God. Having continued, I'll ah, skip this step, too. Looking at more cool things. There's some lichens, shit like that. Jumping ahead some more. Wait, werewolves? Uh, well, no, I'm <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> In the shade of the woods on the southeastern side, we beheld continuous herds of brown quadrupeds, having all the external characteristics of the bison, but more diminutive than any species of the Bose genus in our natural history. Wow. Its tail is like that of our Bose Grunians, which is the domestic yak, but in its semicircular horns, the hump on its shoulders, and the depth of its dewlap, and the length of its shaggy hair, it closely resembled the species to which I first compared it. Again, bison. Oh, God. It had, however, one widely distinctive feature, which we afterwards found commonly to nearly every lunar quadruped we have discovered. Uh, namely, Come on, a say great it. big dangling dick. No, uh... Namely, oh, uh, a, remar- a remarkable fleshy appendage over the eyes, uh, crossing the whole breadth of the forehead and united to the ears. So it's kind of like up a, there, huh? It's like a, <laughs> it's like a brim that they have on their heads, like uh, very big brows. Out of their eyes. Exactly. Uh, it c- occurred to the acute mind of Doctor Herschel that this was a providential contrivance to protect the eyes of the animal from the extremes of light and darkness to which all the inhabitants <laughs> of our moon, our side of the moon, are periodically oh, subjected. Lamarcaby jerking off in his grave right now <laughs> the next animal oh shit i scrolled ahead by accident um the next animal perceived would be classed on earth as a monster <laughs> it was a bluish lead color about the size of a goat with a head and beard like him and a single this guy's just going off oh man i'm just getting warmed up this is just their first time checking out oh, the moon oh my god uh, uh at a single horn, slightly He's inclined. He's like, the next one was, uh, let's see, uh, it was blue. and uh, <laughs> It was, uh, was a unicorn yeah, goat. It, was, it, was frig- it smelled it was like cheese, uni- I could tell but, from uh, here. The female didn't have the horn and beard, but a uh, longer tail. Yeah. You was, know. Yeah, they they lived together. There's a bunch of like freaking antelope things. Um, they hopped around and were cute and cool. And, uh, yeah, more. They're eating some of the different plants. 
Um, I watched for a while. There were some islands. Saw some a strange amphibious creature of a spherical form, which rolled with great velocity across the pebbly beach, and was lost sight of in the strong current which set off from this angle on the island. We were compelled, however, to leave this prolific valley unexplored on account of clouds which were evidently accumulating in the lunar atmosphere, our own being perfectly translucent. Hmm. This was itself an interesting discovery. Far more, uh, for more distant observers had questioned or denied the existence of any humid atmosphere on this planet. So then they, uh, yeah, it gets, they decide to call it a night, make plans for another viewing as soon as they can. What do we think so far? <laughs> I think this guy is Madeline Longle's great 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 grandparents. <laughs> He's both in one. That is very likely. <laughs> I'm glad you even got that as quickly as you did. I'm impressed. I for, for our, her name. Our younger listeners, uh, if you've ever read A Wind, let's see, uh, what's the first one? A Wrinkle in Time. A Wrinkle in Time. A Wind in the Door. A Swiftly Tilting wind Planet. Wind in the Door. All kinds of good stuff. Goes on and on from there and gets progressively more cuckoo banana sandwich bonkers town. But pretty fun stuff. Interesting. Pretty com- fun it's like stuff. sci-fi fantasy combo. Neat stuff. Yes. Article 3, Thursday, August 27th, 1835. They spend a whole bunch of time looking at some cool extinct volcanoes and their, ex- their exploitation of them stuff is pretty like, as you'd expect scientists to discuss... Looking at the geology of that, mm-hmm. then they find some more signs of life. The surrounding country is fertile to excess. Between the circle and uh, Edim, and it's in the certain area they're looking at, we counted not less than 12 luxuriant forests divided by open plains which waved in an ocean of verdure and were probably prairies like those of North America. In three of these, we discovered numerous herds of quadrupeds similar to our friends the bisons in our first observations, but of much larger size, and scarcely a piece of woodland occurred in our panorama which did not dazzle our visions with flocks of white or red birds upon the wing. Wow. Dr. Herschel has classified not less than 38 species of forest trees and nearly twice this number of plants found in this, exact, uh, found in this tract alone, which are widely different to those found in more equatorial latitudes. This is still on the moon, right? Yes. Of animals, he classified nine species of mammalia and five of ovipara. Among the former is a small kind of reindeer, the elk, the moose, the horned bear, and the biped beaver. Hmm. The last resembles the beaver of the earth in every other respect than its uh, destitution of a tail and its invariable habit of walking upon only two feet. It carries its young in its arms like a human being and moves with an easy gliding motion. Adorable. (laughs) Its huts are constructed not unlike those of many indigenous human tribes, and from the appearance of smoke in nearly all of them, there is no doubt of its being acquainted with the use of fire. Wow. Still, its head and body differ only in the points stated from that of the beaver, and it was never seen except on the borders of lakes and rivers, in which it was seen to immerse for a period of several seconds. In other words, I've used my imagination, but I can only go so far as to (laughs) divorce myself from reality. (laughs) They got more rocks, some active volcanoes, I think a stork or something, some huge clams, uh, huge clams, a bunch of pretty crystals, and then a great deal of excitement over where they intended to look next. Chapter four. Wow. Friday, August 28th, 1835. They describe more landscape and some straight up normal earth sheep that they see on the moon. (sighs) And then in a neat, spookier, rocky landscape that they found. We were thrilled with astonishment to perceive four successive flocks of large winged creatures, wholly unlike any kind of birds, descend with a slow, even motion from the cliffs of the western side and alight upon the plain. Here we go. We counted three parties of these creatures, of twelve, nine, and fifteen in each, walking erect towards a small wood near the base of the eastern precipices. 
Certainly they were like human beings, for their wings had now disappeared, and their attitude in walking was both erect and dignified. Oh. They averaged four feet in height, were covered except on the face with short and glossy copper-colored hair, and had wings composed of a thin membrane without hair lying snugly upon their backs from the top of their shoulders to the calves of their legs. I can't remember if I cut the part where he says so, but they look like bat wings. Mm. The face, which was of a yellowish color, was a slight improvement upon that of the large orangutan, being more open and intelligent in its expression and having a much greater expansion of forehead. The this mouth, is a really amazing telescope. Great telescope. <laughs> the mouth, however, was very prominent. He did spend a lot of time explaining why this telescope works so much better than the other ones and just like so leading up in a big way to how it was possible to see all this stuff, apparently. But uh, yeah. The, By successive lenses that are descended within the chamber of the device through a series of interlocking massive toothed gears, there is an ability to... You're you know, joking. You magnify. are joking. But I did cut all the parts where you explained which lens they switched to to see the next thing and which ones they added. And Here we go. Uh, the mouth, however, was very prominent, though somewhat relieved by a thick beard upon the lower jaw, and by lips far more human than those of any species of simian. Yeah, hey, I know how that is. <laughs> Whilst passing across the canvas, and whenever we afterwards saw them, these creatures were evidently engaged in conversation. Their gesticulation, more particularly the varied action of their hands and arms, appeared impassioned and emphatic. We hence inferred that they were rational beings, and although not perhaps of so high an order as others which we discovered the next month on the shores of the Bay of Rainbows, Whoa. they were capable of producing works of art and contrivance. So they got bat wings and civilized society and all that good stuff. Very exciting. Definitely smarter than those dumb beavers. Got that right. And, uh, and don't you worry, Mr. Dr. Chow, someone would later create an illustration of their likeness. I'll send that to you now. I want to see if it squares with the one I have in my mind. I don't know. It's pretty great. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're not ready for this, listeners. <laughs> oh, man. This is, of course, the appropriate thumbnail for this episode. Okay. Ah, <laughs> uh, wow. Yep. I don't know if we should even describe it. I think people should just click on the link and see all the... And yeah, it's, it's, it's fantastic. It's a lot like I described, but even better. It's kind of more, it's more of the Urinchi. It's like what I described, but imagine ballet being involved, I guess. Yeah. And actually sort of less nice than I was envisioning. <laughs> now, you may have noticed in that last sentence of the quoting part that I did that the article alluded to signs of an even more advanced society that they would later observe. Here we go. Article 5, Saturday, August 29th, Bay. 1835. A lot of geography and geology and theorizing about how the valley they were looking at might be particularly suitable for life. Uh, now into the quoting part. The very first object in this valley that appeared upon our canvas was a magnificent work of art. It was an equi-triangular uh, equi temple built of polished sapphire or of some resplendent blue stone, which, like it, displayed myriad points of golden light twinkling and scintillating in the sunbeams. Wow. The roof was composed of some yellow metal and divided into three compartments, which were not triangular planes inclining to the center, but subdivided, curved, and separated, so as to present a mass of violently agitated flames rising from a common source of conflagration and terminating in wildly waving points. Wait, what the hell? It's a sculpture made to look as a temple with a sculpture like made to look like flames. Okay. This design was too manifest and too skillfully executed to be mistaken for a single monument. Mm. Uh, through a few openings in these metallic flames, we perceived a large sphere of a darker kind of metal, nearly of a clouded copper color, which they enclosed and seemingly ra uh, seemingly raged around as if hieroglyphically consuming it. The flames, that is. There was the roof, but upon each of the three corners there was a small sphere of apparently the same metal as the large center one, 
and these rested upon a kind of cornice, quite new in any order of architecture with which we uh, were acquainted, but not, nevertheless exceedingly graceful and impressive. Okay, real quick, just a couple things. Mm-hmm. Kind of losing me now. Mm-hmm. The word hieroglyphically was used as an adverb, if I'm not mistaken, yes. just now? Okay, carry on. And then... I'm getting very lost inside of this thing. We're going down inside of the it's kind of sculpture. Looking, seeing that looking from above, it's it's down big, through the flamey part. Between the flames, they could see this big sphere of metal, and then the whole thing is a triangular-shaped building. On the corners of the triangles are smaller spheres that look like the big one in the middle. Ah. Also, there's on some the like, outside. On the outside. Also, okay. there's some like columns on the outside, and uh, some kind of thing that makes it look like a half-opened scroll. Um, and uh yeah it's it's real okay. it's okay. real nice pretty there's um it's cool see, it was uh it was open on each side and seemed to contain neither seats altars nor offerings but it was a light and airy structure nearly a hundred feet high from its white glistening floor to its glowing roof and it stood upon a round green eminence on the eastern side of the valley we afterwards however discovered two others which were in every respect facsimiles of this one but in neither did we perceive any visitants besides flocks of wild doves which alighted upon his lustrous pinnacles. They found some more of these really fancy-ass temples. Right. No one inside except for some birds. That were even outside. Yeah. Uh, had the devotees of these temples gone the way of all living, or were the latter merely historical monuments? What did the ingenious builders mean by the globe surrounded by flames? Did they by this record any past calamity of their world, or predict any future one of ours? I by no means despair of ultimately solving not only these, but a thousand other questions which present themselves respecting the objects of this planet. For not the monol- uh, for not the millionth part of her surface has yet been explored, and we have been more desirous of collecting the greatest possible number of new facts than of indulging in speculative theories, however seductive, however seductive for the imagination. Wowzers. Yep, lots more to explore. Oh, yeah. We got one more article. Oh, <laughs> Article boy. 6, Monday, August 31st, 1835. I'm just going to summarize this one outright. We saw some cool additional society of different bad people and described them as seeming more refined and intelligent than the first group. A revision on the first draft of that creature. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, so they seem more intelligent, a little more refined, and just for good 19th century measure, made sure to also spe- specify that they seem to be a lighter color than the first group they saw. Oh, yeah. Uh, they saw some other nifty animals and finally wrapped up their lunar observations as their seasonal window of opportunity closed. But fear not, dear reader, Dr. Grant informs us that he and Dr. Herschel had already begun deeper observations on the planet Saturn, see what can be found there. For a final quote from the newspaper itself, here is an editorial note they added in at the end. This concludes the supplement with the exception of 40 pages of illustrative and mathematical notes, which would greatly enhance the size and cost of this work without commensurably adding to its general interest. Editor, The Sun. Wow. Well. So let's address the question likely on everyone's mind. What the shit? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'd be very interested to hear how this was received at the time. It was pretty sensational, as you might expect. It's being reported on as it was fact by a newspaper. People got really excited about it. It did result in a bunch more sales of the New York Sun, um, which a lot of stuff back then was really just people did sensational stuff to do that. Dr. Grant was supposed to be who wrote this whole article for that Edinburgh um, newspaper and then it was transcribed into the New York Sun. Dr. Grant was made up. Uh, he was not a real person. But everything else. <laughs> everything else was exactly right. It, just, it, was, just, it was just a pen name. Um, now the uh, Herschel was a real um, guy at the time and a pretty prominent astronomer among the other things he did. 
but the whole thing has been attributed to Richard Adams Locke, a reporter for the New York Sun at the time. Apparently, in addition to being a deliberate hoax meant to cause sensation and hopefully move some papes, which it did. Uh, Success. And I guess it sounds like the it boosted sales pretty well, and the sales numbers stayed above their previous level forever after that as long as the until the um newspaper shut down eventually so it it wow. did like it increased their readership and kept it that way so that was cool that's cool uh theories was also meant to satire some pretty kooky contemporary theories of the time hmm. basically Locke just did what everyone else was doing earnestly but turned it up just a little to highlight the absurdity nice and uh, the more specific target of his satire was a reverend thomas dick <laughs> Tough. For example, Dick had calculated that these he had calculated that the uh, the solar system contained twenty one trillion eight hundred ninety one billion nine hundred seventy four million four hundred four thousand four hundred eighty inhabitants. Wow! Uh, in his calculations, which were very specific, uh, in his calculations, the moon alone housed some four point two billion inhabitants, oh which is a little over four times the population at the time. Of the notably larger planet called Earth, <laughs> there's I think there were under a, a billion people on Earth at at that point in the 1800s. Wow. So, so his shit was huge in the U.S. Folks like Ralph Waldo Emerson were huge, hugely into his stuff. They mm. big fan of his work. All this can be found in Dick's Celestial Scenery or the Wonders of the Planetary System Displayed, illustrating wow. the perfections of deity and the plurality of worlds. Hmm. So I'll, I'll link to a PDF of that, just in case you want to check it out for, for shits and giggles. See how I am interested to see how he calculated this stuff and why. That'd be fascinating. Check out the link. It's going to look like a bunch of scanned tortillas. Do not be <laughs> alarmed. Keep scrolling down and you will reach the title page and then all the actual type stuff from there. Back in the day, uh, cornmeal was one of the better uh, materials for protecting the uh, center pages of a book. Yes. That's cool. That really... We mentioned the idea of zeitgeisty yeah. stuff at the time and just like capitalizing on that. And that's exactly what this was. Only right. in a, not just a sensational way, but also like a, hey, this is this is goofy, right, guys? Come on. Like it, all kind of a war of the world's way almost. Yeah, right. It's called the Great Moon Hoax and still widely regarded, regarded as one of the like biggest hoaxes ever pulled. And people didn't seem at all mad about the fact that it was a hoax. They're like, oh, that was fun. It's kind of moved on. Like people like, get the readership increased and stayed that way. It didn't hurt from the fact that people found out it wasn't true after the fact. That's cool. You want to see the tortilla paper? Yeah, please. Yeah, I like that. It's it feels like someone just kind of having fun with their imagination oh, and yeah. presenting it as fact, of course. And I can see how finding out this is a hoax, you might not be so frustrated just because you're like, well, it wasn't really going to change my life anyway if this was true. Right. I mean, it, it might change my sense of dimensionality or scale of the universe, but it's like. The moon people aren't coming anytime soon, I don't think. Yeah, and they made a ha- made a point of making it sound like, oh, there's all these different creatures and people, but they're not like as advanced as we are necessarily. They don't have like the means of getting to us. They're like, oh, there's, there's a different world up there, right? Kind of like ours. I mean, down they here. did make this cryptic uh, pyramid thing, right? Yeah, you might have to scroll down to a couple pages deep to see the tortillaness of it, but uh... <laughs> I like the PDF name, Celestial Scener Double O Dick dot PDF. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a big one. It's loading for a it's, long time. Yeah, it's, it's it's. I mean, it's a huge ass book. I think page five is where the tortilla begins. Ooh, four hundred and eight pages. Wow. There's there's a problem. Ah, the tortilla has begun. <laughs> it's a lot of blank pages before you get to the title page. Ooh, I hope there's drawings. I didn't even think about that. Well, that's cool. Wow, we had such uh, 
such a good pair of articles today. This is great. I I think what I remembered of your prompt when I asked you generally what yours was about, you said you could either do uh, just sensational um, adventure stories from the 19th century, possibly vampire stuff, or possibly dinosaur stuff. <laughs> I forgot about the dinosaur stuff until today. But uh, so I was like, let me it's find great. some ridiculous adventure thing, and and I eventually at the eleventh hour found so much of one. Now another As, thing that's cool about yeah. this one is that the a lot of the stuff I cut it was very dry, but it was a lot of stuff that that actually sold it better because it was a lot. Of, like they spent a lot of time talking about, oh, we just saw cool like landscape stuff before they eventually built up to, hey, we saw animals, and then a lot more landscape stuff to build up. Oh, hey, we saw like flying bat people. <laughs> so it mm-hmm. it kept a lot of like just dry standard discovery sounding stuff which which sold it a little bit better than if it had just been oh there's, there's monsters on the moon oh <laughs> yeah there's like animals on the moon but they're like uh just a little bit different <laughs> they got big eyebrows <sighs> they got big eyebrows they're a little bit hairier and as hairy it doesn't matter it doesn't matter <laughs> yeah it is funny it's fun that both it just goes to show you how uh, tried and true the presenting something in a very deadpan kind of almost clinical way, always sells it better. Oh yeah, and ending saying that there's like this concludes the supplement. We have another forty something pages of like illustrations yeah. and, and figures, but they it would cost too much to pr- print them, and they didn't add enough. So like, sorry. Yeah, but, we'll leave those out for now. Yeah. But trust us, there's more data here. Yeah. Wow. Well, hopefully y'all enjoyed that as well, <laughs> and hopefully it taught you a thing or two about reading anything written in the 1800s. For example, if you read. 20,000 Legion of the Sea, you can skip most of the fish paragraphs <laughs> and still enjoy it. Uh, even enjoy, enjoy it even more, actually. <laughs> it is a good book. I recommend it. This is making me think of having read Lord of the Rings. Should have skipped the Plains paragraphs. There's a lot of a lot of uh, description in a lot of these books, and uh, not always necessary. Indeed. Yes. But hey, we all love to uh, describe. Yes, we do. And we all love to... Listen to this podcast all together as friends and family. Thank you so much for joining us. If you haven't yet, please do consider rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts. Oh, yes, please do. And again, if you are not yet a patron, uh, do consider joining. We'd love to have your support. And uh, otherwise, just enjoy. We'll be back some point s- sometime. Depending on when we're back, we may talk about some talking animals next time. If uh, if we don't get a chance to record till October, maybe it'll be something spookier. I don't know. We'll find out. Oh, yeah. We got a lot of spooks on the way for October, let me tell you. We'll be back by then, if not sooner. Certainly. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And uh, I'll have a, a one more ball and chain in my life, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> it's my ring. I've got a ball and chain. you got a very, ring. very heavy, yeah, weird choice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but cool, guys. Thanks for listening. Catch you soon. Bye. Bye.